Welcome to That You May Grow Thereby, a work of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. We are located at 18 Scott Drive in Florence, Kentucky. Our phone number is 859-371-2095. You can also visit us at www.nkcofc.com. And now, that you may grow thereby. Today I want to focus our attention upon a time almost 2,000 years ago in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem. We are focusing upon a gathering of our Lord and his apostles in that room on the very evening in which he was betrayed. An extremely difficult week full of conflict and drama was nearing its end. I want to notice one portion of a conversation that took place between Jesus and 11 of his apostles at what has come to be known as the Last Supper. We will see several absolutely thrilling statements made by Jesus, and hopefully by the conclusion of our talk this morning, you'll have a greater appreciation of the power that lies within our hands through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go in our study to John chapter 14. There are few accounts in all of literature that are as filled with pathos and conflicting emotions as are the gospel accounts of the Last Supper, particularly John's account. Prior to chapter 14, Jesus had revealed that one of their own, one of his apostles, was going to betray him. He had revealed to them that his death was near, although they did not fully understand what he meant. These men had essentially given their all to follow Jesus, and now he was telling them that he was going away and that they could not follow him at that time. To make matters worse, remember what happened with Peter in John 13, 37, 38? Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. This seems to be the first of two distinct traditions of Peter's denial of the Lord. And we can just imagine how Peter felt upon hearing those words. At the second prediction, Peter would respond with these words, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. What were the apostles thinking at this time? What were their anxieties, their emotions, their fears? To them, Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. The word translated as be troubled expresses the idea of a sea that is being tossed by wind and waves that are just battering one another. In other words, an emotional storm full of agitation. But faith is capable of bringing a person through such times. So Jesus said, you believe in God, believe also in me. And that is still the remedy for hearts that are troubled. Believe in God, believe also in Jesus. So Jesus continued and said, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again 
and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. In a very beautiful figure, Jesus spoke of a large house filled with rooms that were available for all. The word itself carries with it the idea of a permanent residence. If all was about to end, and his death was going to be the culmination of all that he had done and all of his work, if there was to be nothing beyond that at all, Jesus said he would have told them. However, that was not the case. They could take great comfort from the fact that Jesus was leaving, yes, but he was going to prepare a place for them, a place of permanent residence in the Father's house. Consider verses 4 and 5, And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Thomas gave voice to something that had to be on all of their minds. What was Jesus talking about? Where was he going and how were they expected to know the way there? Then came that incredible answer. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I think we need to pause and make a point in this day of changing attitudes and political correctness. If words mean anything at all, the only way to heaven, the only way to the Father, is through Jesus. When the Lord said, I am the way, the pronoun is emphatic, meaning I and no other. There is no other way. That implies a belief in, obedience to, and imitation of the Lord. Not only does Jesus show us the way, he is the way. Jesus didn't claim to have access to the way, or to knowing the truth, or to being in contact with the life of God. Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, it is within the essence of who he is, the divine word, to express in himself the way to God, the truth of God, the life of God. If anyone would come to the Father, he cannot do so unless he or she has a relationship with the very one who is the way, the truth, and the life. This is not some kind of boast, nor is it some meaningless expression. It is not bigoted. It is not narrow-minded. It is simply the way things are. It is the truth. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 18, For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, we find, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, the flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Peter expressed it this way in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. He wrote, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Jesus is the way, the very embodiment of truth. Let's go back to John, this time chapter 8, and look at verses 31 and 32. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, 
and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. It is only through the truth that a person is truly made free. Now skip on down to verse 36. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Did you catch that? The Son, Jesus, makes men free through the truth of which he is the very embodiment and fullness. As the truth, he is the way to the Father. Even further, Jesus is the way because he is the life, the divine life by which man is united with God, only in him who came from God, in whom is the divine life of God, can man be united with the Father. Jesus is the way. Excuse me. Now again, if words mean anything, then Muhammad is not the way. Buddha is not the way. Krishna is not the way. Moses and the Torah are not the way. Or anyone or anything else we might care to put in there. Jesus, if words mean anything, is the one and only way to God. And we can't water that down and claim to believe what God says. It is not love to teach that there are many ways to heaven. Let God be true and every man a liar. Love demands that we teach what Jesus taught. He is the only way, truth, and life, and no man can come to the Father but by him. So let's go back now to John 14 and pick up in verses 7 and 9. Jesus said, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long time with you and yet have you not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I believe the real meaning of the Lord's statement is, Have I been so long with you and you have not recognized me? Philip had been with Jesus since the beginning of the Lord's public ministry. Indeed, Philip was one of the first of the disciples to follow him. For three years, Jesus had been in their midst, and now the process of training these men in person was almost at an end. They had been with him, but they had not recognized him. Jesus is the revelation of God. In John chapter 1, verse 14, we find, And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That is the incarnation. Verse 18 declares, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul wrote, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness, he who was revealed in the flesh. How about one more? Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 refers to Jesus as the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Really, no brief vision, material image, or likeness, however majestic, could adequately portray the Father. But the approximately three years the apostles were in the company of Jesus and the gospel account of those three years that we are blessed to read and study, they show us God in Christ. If we want to see the Father, 
Look at the Son. Back in John 14, this time, verses 10 and 11, Jesus explained how he made known the Father. He said, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. My friends, the words that Jesus spoke while on earth were essentially given him by the Father. Down in verse 24, he said, He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the words which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. When the disciples heard Jesus, when we read his words today, we are hearing the Father in the fullest sense imaginable. Jesus embodied God. But give careful consideration to those works that Jesus mentioned. Just in the Gospel of John, we see their significance. First, in chapter 2, we see Jesus turn water into wine, demonstrating that he is Lord of creation. He's the one who created the vine. He's the one who created the water. With that which he created, Jesus could do anything he chose to do. In this work, Jesus demonstrated that he is master of all matter. When he wills, it obeys. In chapter 4 is the healing of the nobleman's son. At a later time, Jesus was again in Cana of Galilee. A certain nobleman of Capernaum, a city about 16 miles away, came to Jesus on behalf of his dying son. At the word of the Lord, the son was made well. Jesus was master over disease and distance. There were no barriers to him who came from God and in whom dwell all the fullness of deity. In chapter 5, Jesus healed a man who had been suffering from his infirmity that made him lame for over 38 years. It didn't matter to Jesus if this man had been sick for 38 minutes or 38 years. He was the master of time. In chapter 6, he fed the 5,000 with five small loaves and two small fish. Actually, the 5,000 number was only that of the men. Who knows how many women and children were there? And when they were finished eating, 12 baskets of fragments were gathered up. Thus, Jesus demonstrated his claim to provide for man's physical needs and by analogy, his ability to provide for man's spiritual needs. Again in chapter 6, in the midst of a stormy night on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus walked on the water. He showed himself to be the master of the natural forces of wind, waves, and water. He is the Lord of the law of gravity and its power. In chapter 9, Jesus restored the sight of a man who had been born blind. In this remarkable sign, Jesus revealed himself as the master of light, exercising control over the power of darkness. He claimed to be the light of the world, and it stood firm in this symbolic way. In chapter 11, he raised Lazarus from the dead. This was a sign that gave indisputable proof. He stood before the tomb of his friend and called with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he did. Jesus proved himself master over life and death and his claim to be the resurrection and the life. I think of the words of Nicodemus in John 3 and verse 2. Nicodemus said, Rabbi, speaking to Jesus, we know that you come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
I think of the words of John in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And now, for now, let's go one last time to John 14 and read verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Think about that statement and what it may mean. It is true that the apostles would be going about preaching the gospel and would possess the ability to perform miracles to demonstrate the divine origin of their message. And it is true that certain other first century Christians upon whom the apostles laid their hands would possess various miraculous spiritual gifts. But the greater works to which Jesus referred were not miracles. I mean, how could one miracle be classified as greater or more impressive than another? No, my friends, the greater works refers to the conversion of the lost, the evangelization of the world. Truly, the conversion of one soul is intrinsically more divinely wonderful than miracles. In fact, the ultimate purpose of the Lord's coming to earth and dying, being resurrected and ascending into heaven, was that we might be saved. Do we understand and truly appreciate the tremendous power that has been entrusted into our hands? We have the gospel called by Paul the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek in Romans 1 and verse 16. What we do here on earth with that gospel is acknowledged and seen in heaven. What greater work could there possibly be than to teach someone who is spiritually damned on the road that leads to eternal torment? What better work can we do than to teach them the way of salvation? We have the same power to do that that the apostles had. We have the same power to work those greater works that Jesus spoke of. Teaching the person that we work next to, teaching our friends and anyone else who will listen, is a greater work than the stupendous miracles we read of in the scriptures. Do we understand and appreciate that? Lord willing, we'll have more to say about that in the next episode.